This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the status of mental behavioral health care in context of recent and ongoing changes in delivery and payment reform brought about largely by the Affordable Care Act. With me to discuss the topic is Joyce Whale, Vice President of the Institute for Behavioral Health Care Improvement in New York City. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You're welcome. It's good to be here. Thank you again. Uh, Ms. Will's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, let me note that it's estimated that only 2 in 10 adults with common mental health problems receive professional care in any given year. Beyond the suffering patients endure from a mental or behavioral health diagnosis, underdiagnosis and treatment of these illnesses substantially undermines treatment of all too frequently co-occurring acute and chronic physical health problems that combined increase morbidity, mortality, and healthcare costs. Today, when we ever increasingly talk about treating the quote-unquote whole person and providing quote-unquote patient-centered care, there may be hope that the healthcare delivery industry does a better job treating mental and behavioral health disorders. With me to discuss reforms in healthcare delivery, particularly in primary care, that offer the potential to better integrate mental behavioral health care is again Joyce Well. Joyce, with that, let me begin by asking a couple few very basic questions. How prevalent are uh, mental health uh, or behavioral disorders? Well, in the United States, when we look at um, diagnostic categories, one in four adults, so approximately 61 million Americans experience mental illness in a given year, um, one in about 17, um, so about 13.6, live with a serious mental illness, such as what we would call schizophrenia or major depression or bipolar disorder. And uh, the numbers are not uh, that much different for um, teenagers. And so about 20% of youth ages 13 to 18 in any given year um, can experience um, a mental illness. Um, when we begin to look uh, across the board for people that have substance use conditions, um, we also see a high prevalence in people that both have substance abuse and mental health conditions. And um, we like to, to refer to that as individuals with mental and substance use conditions. Um, in terms of the field, we have uh, a lot of issues with regard to definition. So I'm going to try to do my best in terms of being clear when I refer to the two different um, disabilities. So you did uh, get to it. So that's the question, term of art here. So what is the appropriate category of term of art here when we talk about these conditions? 
A term of art would really be to best say mental and substance use conditions because that really gives the um, person uh, an opportunity to understand that mental illness is a physical illness as is um, a substance use condition. There was a time in the country where it was really believed that these were not medical illnesses, but in fact were il illnesses related to how people were raised as opposed to the biology of the brain. And so today, when we refer to them, um, best to refer to them as conditions, um, not so much um, the illness anymore, because the other piece to it is that um, for a very long time in this country, there was a belief, and frankly, there still continues to be a belief, that people can't recover from a mental illness. You, you talk about recovery, and we have a lot of recovery model programs in chemical dependency, but for a very long time, people believed that a mental illness was not something recoverable from, and today, people with serious and persistent mental illness are able to hold down jobs, get married, have children, have sufficient relationships, um, and so the idea that something, uh, an illness, that one doesn't recover from an illness um, just really affects the stigma. And so therefore, people really like to refer to them as conditions. Okay. Very helpful. Thank you. I noted uh, the extent to which these disorders or diagnoses or conditions are undertreated. Why, why is this? Why generally is this? Uh, that's absolutely true, and partly we have both stigma on individuals in terms of believing that they have a condition that requires treatment. We also have stigma associated with healthcare professionals actually um, not seeing some of the mental and substance use conditions as part of an entire person's illness, and so therefore, um, over many, many years, there are folks in uh, medical communities that don't necessarily want to or get involved with the treatment of a total person, and so they sort of cordon off their desire to really not dive deep into asking somebody or screening somebody for these types of conditions. And lastly, access to care. In this country, it's only in the last 20 years that we are even able to have the conversation about um, a right to have care. Remember, we have a situation where we had two different kinds of co-payments if you were commercially insured. One if you went to your primary care doc and then a separate co-payment if you went for uh, treatment of uh, mental or substance use conditions, and those co-payments were not the same. Uh, and so even there was like a third category, you'd have specialty care. So maybe you, um, you know, went to um, a particular medical specialist, you might have a slightly higher copay, but you wouldn't have the same copay is what you would if you were going to uh, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a psychiatric social worker. 
So partly um, it really has to do with stigma and access to care. Um, the other part to this is that in, in, our, in the United States, we have a huge percentage of individuals that um, are not getting treated because they're actually um, being put into the criminal justice system. And so there are a lot of people that actually believe that prisons are the replacement for the old um, state psychiatric hospitals that are that have closed over the many years. Um, and so individuals that are in the uh, prison system don't often get the kind of care that they need. Um, and there's also cultural differences as well. Um, we have some cultures that are very accepting of care, and we have other cultures that aren't, and therefore the stigma in that particular person's family about seeking care, the whole word crazy and what that means, um, means something different to different cultures. And there are a lot of studies now that begin to really address how you need to specialize based upon culture and also how you engage somebody in care so that, in fact, you um, engage them and their family in care based on respect of one's culture and race. Very helpful. So stigma, access, reimbursement, your fourth point on the criminal justice, the recent articles in the New York Times about Rikers Island makes uh, that point uh, pretty emphatic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, I wouldn't just say that, you know, it's an East Coast uh, sure. phenomenon. Um, I, I would say, as we were talking before, I'm connected with the um, Institute for Behavioral Health Care Improvement, which is a national organization, and we hear from across the country, our colleagues in California, Chicago, and Texas, Miami, other big cities, that um, the whole idea of where you're providing care to people and whether you get into the um, health care system for the same behavior as you may be arrested for is a very serious um, issue. So it's um, while the Times was covering a lot, it's really a national mm -hmm. issue in terms of where people and how people get care. And it's also important to note that People with a serious and persistent mental illness tend to die 25 years earlier than individuals without, and they're not dying from suicide or any other kind of um, issue related to their mental or substance use condition. It's a general chronic health condition, um, such as uh, diabetes or heart disease. Um, so... I think the other piece of getting care and the access to care is got to be full circle to um, really the total person and treating the total person. Right, absolutely. You look at mortality rates amongst the homeless, and that's, um, that is definitely the case. Let's go to discussing changes in the current health care delivery system. So what is it about health care or primary care specifically today or what delivery form models being implemented today uh, may improve or better integrate diagnosis and treatment uh, mm -hmm. for these conditions? 
Well, thankfully, we've reached a point in our country where we can talk about how we're not going to continue health care in silos, which is what we did for many years by having separate, quote, health care system and a separate uh, system for those with mental and substance use conditions, which actually started out because of lack of care. So advocates really created this kind of payment arrangement and system um, to really make sure that people got the care they needed. However, it became extremely siloed as a result, and people weren't looking at the total person. So when we look at the um, Accountable Care Act and we begin to see the role of the patient-centered medical home, one of the most, shall I say, exciting day for advocates for um, providing care for the total person was when the regulations, if you will, to be considered a patient-centered medical home really included the need for uh, looking um, at the treatment of people with mental and substance use conditions. So when uh, setting up the patient-centered medical homes, um, you really had to look at screening of people. So, you know, we have things like vital signs. We, you know, have things where we look at um, an individual's pain threshold. But what we weren't necessarily looking at when you would go to your primary care doc was how that person was feeling emotionally or was that person actually having any type of addictive disease as well. Uh, and so in a arrangement with a patient-centered medical home, the requirements under the um, getting the reimbursement for providing that level of care require the screening and early identification of people with mental and substance use conditions and needing to actually document that in a, you know, in a medical record. So, um, there is an incentive now to want to improve and to better integrate care. Um, and in a care plan, not just focusing on one piece of that person's care, but really the integration of the total person for that care. Okay, and that suggests too, and let me ask you about the aspect of team-based care and care for the whole person requires such. So is it the case we're seeing more collaborative efforts in care delivery? We are seeing a tremendous amount of collaborative efforts. Um, there are efforts across the country to really recognize that people with chronic diseases generally suffer from depression, and that includes um, really having an interdisciplinary team at the patient-centered medical home. Uh, there are um, places that are beginning to look in women's health practices um, and making sure that there is a commensurate um, support for people that have uh, mental and substance use conditions. There, the, the whole concept of one-stop shopping, if you will, rather than sending somebody to separately get mental health services and, and then having the stigma of walking in the door that says the behavioral health pavilion, um, you know, uh, really also has been limiting for 
the kind of approach to the integrated care. We also have insurers that are beginning to incentivize. In this country, we're moving towards uh, insurers um, creating the kinds of uh, both financial incentives and aligning the care to say, well, we're not going to have two different payment structures for, you know, one for general health care and one for mental and substance use conditions that um, it all has to be tied together. Um, and I think that's what is wonderful within the accountable care organizations, uh, the ACOs, um, most of which are provider organizations that are also now um, the insurer, and that merger alone has created sort of the birth of more integrated care because one knows that if you want to control and look at costs, you also want to get the kind of engagement in care that um, patients need to have. And today, um, mostly as important as access to care and knowing that somebody can get care is how we engage people in care. Because we still have a tremendous amount of people that um, also don't want to take care of themselves. And um, it's not necessarily a want because they don't know how to take care of themselves. Part of it is, you know, there's a huge denial of chronic conditions and a huge denial of uh, both mental and substance use conditions. And we know that in order for us to break through that, healthcare providers need to come together in teams to really address how to engage people in care. And, and could you put a finer point on the fact that for acute chronic conditions with a complication of mental behavioral conditions, um, treatment success is substantially compromised. If you don't address both, neither the former nor the latter can be effectively addressed. Right. We, you know, we have data out there now that really talks about when you have a sophisticated care management structure in place that recognizes both medical conditions and uh, conditions of um, mental and substance abuse, substance use, excuse me, um, that you can A, reduce health care costs and B, better engage patients in their care, which then helps keep them out of the high-end emergency services and inpatient care. Okay, okay. Let me ask you, um, uh, lastly perhaps, from a, a practical standpoint, since this whole person care effort is really historically fairly new, uh, that we address both uh, the physical and the mental, uh, what does, uh, in this instance, what does good care uh, look like? I mean, very practical question. Sure. So good care really starts back in the the days of when we talked about prevention. And good care early on recognizes the contribution that when one is struggling with um, emotional issues, at any point in their life, that this is going to affect their total person. And so good care starts up front by recognizing 
that um, a mental or substance use condition can wreak havoc on not just an individual's life, but that whole individual's family. So good care starts with early identification um, and starts with looking at matters, you know, as young as five and six years old where you can begin to see the formation of these kinds of um, mental and maybe not so much at five or six substance use conditions, but clearly people become challenged. And so good care is when a pediatrician picks up that something just is not right. Good care is when a school nurse may pick up that something is just not right. And we also begin to provide the kinds of interventions that might start with education might start with parenting skills, might start with helping kids think better of themselves, looking at their um, the way they look at themselves, their own identity. And then we move into a continuum where good care is helping people stay in a community. It's not healthy to be in a hospital. And so if we want to truly look at what a good system looks like, we want to make sure that we keep people in the community. We want to make sure that we keep people housed. As you said earlier, um, the homeless suffer tremendous amount of uh, mental and substance use conditions. Um, about 26% of homeless adults staying in shelters uh, live with a mental illness or a substance use condition. So, you know, we know that there are certain kinds of things that we want to do to keep people healthy. And then I think including, not just viewing it uh, as an individual, but including a whole family in really creating what's called a good, good care plan and a good crisis plan. A crisis doesn't always mean somebody has to go to an emergency room. There's lots of good community-based crisis intervention. Um, and lastly, a really good system has ways to engage people in care, not just punitively, but um, bringing the right care at the right time provided by the right individuals um, to our patients. So we get some shared decision-making, I think, is the phrase we would use. Absolutely. Having our consumers involved in care as early on as possible. Okay, Joyce, with that, sadly we're at our time limit. So I do want to say very interesting conversation, very helpful, and I thank you for it. Much appreciated. Thank you for inviting me. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.